This week, I'm going to talk about who's making money on the App Store. Okay. And so this comes about for me because of, I was thinking about it, because of the new release of Monument Valley. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think it's today, right? This week, anyway. Oh, this, this, week. this week. I think it was a couple of days ago. They, I think okay. Simone was going on and on about it at least yesterday, but I think it was was uh, a day before that. Okay. We'll, we'll take that as a given then sometime this week. Now, they weren't releasing a new app. They were releasing new levels for their game, and they were releasing them as an in-app purchase for uh, the existing game. And it's interesting what, what Apple makes you do for that, because Apple does make it easier than other ways that you could that you used to get new content for, for things. Uh, you know, you have to go to some, some website maybe or something like that. or And so they just, you know, you just type in your password and you can buy it with your credit card. But you do have to download the app first, mm-hmm. the new version of the app with the content that you have yet to decide whether you want to buy or not. Right. And then you, you install that and then then you get the chance to buy the new level. And apparently there were some complaints. Now, it's it's ludicrously cheap. I mean, the, the game itself was $4.00 original game. The new levels are, are $2 extra. And apparently some people are complaining about, you know, my God, how can you charge me for more content for this? And I actually had the opposite fear when I heard that, that they were going to be coming out with new levels. And then I was afraid they weren't going to ask me to pay for them because mm-hmm. I would really rather be able to you know give some money to the, to the creators of this. Whereas if they had said, well, no, we're going to add it into the existing game in the hopes that more people will now buy the game because some people do that. And I would not have wanted to do that because then I can't pay them for the stuff. So, but again, people saying, Hey, you're terrible for wanting more money for this. So that got, you know, got me thinking a little bit and we've talked, I think we've talked about this in the past. I know a lot of other people have talked about it. You know, how do you, how do you do that? How do you make money? Cause there are a decent number of people who have for years and years and years seemed to be making money off of selling apps for the Mac and companies that do this and, and individuals that do this, but it seems to be a lot harder to do that for, for iOS. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the app store, I'm talking about the iOS app store. Of course, there's also the Mac app store, but that's not the only game in town. So now there are a couple of people who I made notes of who are don't, who probably not making money. And one of them would be Jared Sinclair. Mm-hmm who made the RSS app Unread, which probably everybody's heard about. And so he actually made a pretty big splash uh, a couple months ago when it came out, and he got, you know, kind of a round of, of publicity from the podcast, from websites, from, from various Apple pundits. And then he came back like a month or two later, a couple months later, and said, yeah, I made some money with that initial splash, but then the sales went you know, through the floor, and it was obvious it wasn't enough money for me to live off of. And so eventually, I think he sold it, the app. And I think he, or at least he, he said, I'm not going to work on it anymore, and went to work for another company. So he's, you know, one definitive example of someone who seemed to have done everything right. Mm-hmm. I've made a nice app. I've made an app that people seem to like, but but I'm not going to, it doesn't work. Another one, and this one is a little more uh, unsure, because we don't know, we don't know all the details, and that's fine is that I noticed that Brent Simmons went to work uh, at Omni, mm-hmm. and that's public. He said he went to work at Omni. When he had been part of this Q branch group of people mm-hmm. who were working on Vesper. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my hope would have been that if Vesper, and, you know, Vesper has been publicized, right. obviously, by, by all three members of the team, you know, 
John Gruber has mentioned it in Daring Fireball and on the talk show and puts it on so he puts it, put it on, his, on his website. Daring Fireball has a has a link all the time to this app. Mm-hmm. And Dave Wiskus has talked about working on it. Actually, I guess he he may have talked about it less on his stuff. But he's also a fairly these are all celebrities of our of our scene, of the developer scene of the app pundit scene. And one would have hoped that this would have been successful if anybody could have made it work, you know, uh, iOS app work, would have been these guys. And so my assumption is that if Brent Simmons is not working on it full time, if he's gone to work at Omni, that therefore there wasn't enough money for that. Now, that might be wrong, but we'll see. Um, so so those are the ones that I can think of off the top of my head is that they, they aren't making money on it. Now, there are some people who are making money, and there are some classifications of things that are making money. It would seem that in the consumer app realm, that in-app purchases seem to be making the most money for everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's you know games, and then you know we can go back to Monument Valley, that, that they're in-app purchase for, for upgrades to the games. And also, it's funny, <clears throat> the second entry I have here for in-app purchase is Marco, because it seems like Marco Arment, his new podcasting app, which is... God, I should have wrote it, written it down. Anyway, overcast, if you, if you, overcast, right? That he he talked at length in some accidental tech podcast shows about the fact that he specifically decided to make the app free and have an in-app purchase for some of its functionality as his way of of making money. You know, and so his goal was not to give everything away for free. His goal was to still make money, to make money in the ways that he knew how. And the way to do that was to get it, get the app in lots of people's hands and, and, and make money with that. And he hasn't obviously given crazy details about it, but it, he seems pretty happy with, with how it's gone. So that, you know, one classification is people who are making money. I would say the only other decent sized company that I, that seems pretty sure to be making money is again, going back to something I just mentioned is Omni. Mm-hmm. Omni has a bunch of apps that are pro apps. I mean, they're not, they're not pro prep, prosumer apps, whatever they I mean, they're for, reg- for regular people. They're not enterprise apps, but they are apps that cost a significant amount of money that have upgrades every couple of years. And yet Omni is not, Omni, Omni is doing pretty well. They're hiring <laughs> apparently, uh, they're not a little tiny company. They're they're a decent sized company, and they've been going on for years and years and years. So it would seem that they're having some success with that. And they don't think they do contracting. I think it's they just do their apps. So they've got to be making making some money. Now they also sell Mac apps as well. So I would be curious whether you know is if this were proof that iOS apps can make money. It's not definitive proof. And if they were to come back and say, well, yeah, you know, we make iOS versions because that's what people want, but we're making the bulk of our money off of the Mac apps. I don't believe they've ever said that publicly. If they were to say that, then that would actually be proof against it. So, so again, grain of salt with that one. Another company that seems to be making money because they've been around a long time and they keep putting out apps that I thought of off the top of my head was TapBots. Because mm-hmm. they, do, they do TweetBot. They do a couple of other bot uh, apps. Now, here's where we get interesting because you know i looked at their website i had not been aware of exactly how big they are it seems like there are only two people on staff with that so that actually comes down more that seems more like kind of the the, the people who it seems to be a lot more of you know individual developers making money rather than big companies although the other one actually now that i think about it again uh, agile mm-hmm. agile software they make one password they seem to be you know, sticking around and having more than just like one or two people as well. So, 
think they're also in the, in the plus column, although they also make a Mac app and they also make a, a Android app. So again, exactly how much they make with each one would, would be an interesting thing to find out. Uh, and then the last one that I wanted to mention was uh, David Smith, or as he's mentioned on various podcasts, underscore David Smith, who's actually, whose actually website is not underscore David Smith.org. It's, it's David dash Smith.org. <laughs> so there you go. He has a variety of apps um, uh, about the weather. Check the weather. Seemed to be one of the more recent ones. And uh, so he's obviously just one person making these apps, which seems to be more the pattern of people who are around. And also he does, he does do contracting, as far as I can tell, because he even says like, his company is named like, such and such consulting. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me to be the more of the pattern, is that people will make apps, but then they'll also do contracting. And then if their apps make enough money, then they'll cut back on the contracting. If their app doesn't make money, they'll go back to the contracting. Yeah, a little bit of diversification there. And that does seem like when you say, well, who's making money in the app store? Kind of turn that question a bit a bit askew. Is that, of course, it seems like a lot of the people who are making money in the app store are the people making apps for are the developers working for other companies to make their apps. And I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but it's an interesting little story that one of the companies I interviewed after I left Apple they were a contracting company, and but but they they were just a couple of people, right? Just people who knew each other, people who were setting things up. Mm-hmm. And I did ask them at the time, you know, why contracting? Why not why not make your own apps? Because that you know, at the time it seemed to me to, to be the best way to do it. And they said, you know, this was the beginning of the race to the bottom. And they said it seems to us that you know we can't make money on our own apps. We we can only make money making apps for for other people. And. So is that, you know, maybe that's really the case. Although it even seems to me that some contractors are also leaving the business for bigger companies now. Yeah. Like a decent number of people are, are going to Apple. And that actually comes to the last thing that I wanted to talk about in terms of making money in that maybe this is just maybe this is just my personal view for it. But since even contracting, contracting, you know, contracting has, has problems. Contracting is, is not, you don't, I don't need to tell you. Yeah. It seems to me that the, the sweet spot for saying, well, we're going to make money off of apps on the App Store is actually to find a company whose business is not the App Store. Because you can find a company that's doing something which relies on sort of real real money, you know, a real other business that's not necessarily related to technology, that's not only technology. Then you can say, well, we're making money off of that. And then the apps that we make are the, are the window into that functionality that you need. But they're not, you know, you're not relying on on app store trends to make your money. You're not relying on tech uh, trends or, or, you know, the, the direction of the market or whatever to make money. You're you're relying on something else that you know about. Of course, the problem with that is that then you need to know some other business to to make that work. And of course, not not a lot of developers will will know that. But that's it's not necessarily an entirely cohesive argument here. But I thought I'd go through that. Other topic for this week. So, any thoughts, Wolf? Uh, yeah. So, two things came to mind uh, while you're going through the list. Um, Andy Fennell of Fortunate Bear. I had him speak at one of the C fours. Forget which one about contracting. Yep. And uh, he recently has started working at uh, Walmart Labs. He's giving up contracting. Right. No, I saw that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's you know contracting is uh, very lucrative and. 
I recommend to a lot of people. Um, obviously, you know, everyone wants to direct, right? And it doesn't have the cachet of, of uh, you know, crafting your own app and selling it directly and all that. It doesn't have the romanticism of it. Um, but I, my standard line is that, you know, in the late 90s that everyone needed a website, I guess, early, well, late 90s. Everyone needed a website, and now everyone needs an app. But I think... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've been complaining about app store pricing for a long time, and I think it's just it's, it's finally is you know all kind of you know there was definitely a kind of gold rush in the beginning, and some people won the lottery, but now kind of reality's sunk in, and the indies were kind of first to go, and um, I think it was uh, Rob Ryan who said in a last year singleton that the future of building apps is uh, our teams and so you're seeing that it's hard to really kind of do a contracting consulting type thing where you throw a team at an app and that's because uh you know you you see even tap bots which you know obviously um their twitter clients you know (laughs) i built a twitter client part of one and you know it's actually surprisingly involved and it's to the return on investment that simply isn't there where with prices being driven down you can't afford to pay programmers what they could make even contracting and with and now even contracting seems to be taking a bit of a hit there i don't know i think it's i don't know i'm talking to people it still seems like there's maybe in the very beginning of the early stages of race to the bomb for app contracting but to my knowledge rates are still high and we're still and there still seems to be more demand than there is supply Obviously, a lot of people are learning and trying to fill that, and I'm sure we'll, 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 the bubble will pop eventually. But um, yeah, so it's. But I don't know where that's leading. But I also want to mention that uh, Paul Kim, who does uh, Noodle Software or NoodleSoft, uh, he had a talk at NS Conference this year that I and I remember this came through and I just looked it up. Yeah, it is it is on Vimeo, so you can watch it. And his, the title of his talk is Life Outside the App Store, the Mac App Store. And so his primary product, uh, Hazel, is a pref paint, and that you can't even sell those in the Mac App right. Store. Yep. And he is a one-man shop, and he's been able to success, successfully uh, support himself for a number of years, and he's doing well. And he you know, considered going into the Mac App Store and he made the decision not to and he's been and he's been able to support himself for that. I don't know if it's a long-term thing, uh but he seems to be in pretty good shape and his talk is I haven't listened to it myself. I actually I'm glad you mentioned this topic because I wanted to I really need to omnifocus this because I I forgot I wanted to listen to his talk, but I suspect it's probably worth listening to. Cool. Okay, so now uh I can go into my topic. Which, if I want to be a bit saucy, uh, it would be Jit the Lit, uh, as in just in time, the literature. So, uh, Damien Katz is the author, at least the primary author, of Couch, CouchDB, which is a distributed database, or at least a database with, with distributed replica kind of design in it. And he did a tweet uh, end of October, which I really wanted to bring up last, when it was a little bit fresher, but uh, I had other topics I wanted to hit first. Are we topical? topical? (laughs) This one actually might have been a little bit topical, but it's it's all good. It all stands up. Um, So his tweet uh, that kind of set off a bit of a firestorm 
he, he tweeted, Distributed systems, don't read the literature. Most of it is outdated and unimaginative. Invent and reinvent. The, feared, the field is fertile, really. Wow, that's <laughs> them fighting words, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. And of course, it definitely set off a, a firestorm about, um, about uh, how, what a bad idea this is. Uh, so a few more <laughs> tweets here that when designing CouchDB early on, I'd experienced engineers tell me don't. I don't know enough. I look foolish. And so this is – he's definitely kind of combative here, and, and he definitely goes over the line where even – he purposely is kind of piss, trying to piss off academics. Uh, here's, an, here's another one. I was wrong. Don't implement anything until you've read everything. So – <laughs> so it's i mean it's like any like schoolyard fight right it's like i think i, I don't know if we've mentioned on the on the show before but i have this theory about fights is that it's not just because we like to watch people bleed or or we're attracted to motion or something is that i think that at least in the intellectual realm that when people fight about things it's basically it's a shortcut for for us to help us understand that when you see two people debating something, even <laughs> perhaps overly sarcastic ways, it you can it's kind of like reading the paper, right? It's like you can do some basic. You know, it might be a topic that you just have a kind of a, a a casual interest in, but you're like, "Oh, there's a fight over here, and this guy represents this side, and that guy represents that side." Let's let's watch, see what happens. You know, maybe this will maybe I'll change my mind about this, or maybe I'll learn more about this. So it's um. It tends to be fertile, right? It's it tends to be pretty dense. So I was assuming that you're not overly sarcastic, which obviously he was, but he was also <laughs> definitely being playful. And so this is this is I think that I, there's a, a a deeper point here that and one that also kind of uh, touches on C4 and one that also has to do with uh, my friend Alex Payne's uh, Merging Languages camp. Um, there's there's this huge disconnect between academia and uh, and f- for better lack of a better term pragmatic and we and I won't go into it that much um, because I think we did a pretty good job covering episode fifty five the pragmatic and the academic but um, it's the <clears throat> so as practical programmers and I suspect most people listening to this the show are probably practical programmers, maybe with an interest in literature or academic academic thing. Is that <clears throat> obviously there's there's a great amount to, to learn from academia, and the however, and I think Dan does a, a good way of kind of putting his uh, uh, make his stance clear here, is that you can totally just, you can spend all day writing code. And at the end, you have a program that's probably broken in some some interesting way that's not obvious, or it can spend all your day reading papers, and then you don't have a program at all. And so, if I had to choose between being just a total non-academic person or a fully academic person, I'd have to come down on being a pragmatic person, someone who writes code all day without paying attention to the rest of the world. But fortunately, we don't have to make that choice. We can try to uh, merge the two and meld the two. And and really use one to inform the other, and that was a big thrust of C four, and that was and that's also a big thrust of Emerging Languages Camp, is the idea that um, the unfortunately the academic academic world it tends to be kind of insular, and um, and also we have like these outmoded uh, institutions like the ACM, 
And ACM has done, you know, been getting better at the year. They've been putting uh, content on their blog and stuff like that. But I think their their uh, their model is is you know pretty outdated in terms of selling access to academic papers that themselves um, tend to be not geared toward, uh, you know, not something that pragmatic programmers can go and look up easily. So it's pretty much up to pragmatic people who are who are able to kind of put up with academia to kind of, um, you know, go into the forest, find the nuts and berries, and bring them out into the town of the pragmatic people. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I will mention that he, he does go on to clarify, and I'll quote him again, um, I don't discourage anyone from reading papers, but sometimes a new perspective can produce amazing res- results. I try not to waste my ignorance. And this goes into a tangential but related uh, item of of uh, this idea of not wasting your ignorance, which I think is really important. Um, so the the uh, from Zen Buddhism is this thing called Choshin, which I'm probably mispronouncing, but who cares? Uh, and that stands for beginner's mind. And this sounds all very pretentious, but hang in with me. So from Wikipedia, it describes it as an attitude of openness, eagerness, and lack of preconceptions. And apparently this, this uh, guy who wrote a book on Zen Buddhism, uh, Shanryu Suzaki, who said, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In the expert's mind, there are few. So this entire beginner's mind thing and the Zen Buddhism type thing and how it's applicable to pragmatic programming um, I would call about 60% bullshit, and, which is problematic. If it was altogether bullshit, we wouldn't be mentioning on the program. Uh, not 50, not 70, <laughs> 60% bullshit. But if, okay. if it was a 0% bullshit, then everyone would be talking about it. But <laughs> I, I'd say it's about 60% because in my mind, preconceptions are a force multiplier that – you can't, you know, we, we sit down Xcode and you sit down writing some code with four loops and variables. Uh, you know, yes, you have preconceptions how this is going to work, and that allows you to get stuff done. Um, but of course, preconceptions are highly lim- limiting as well. So, I want, so this brings me to something that I found is actually pretty useful that I don't know if everyone does because. Uh, a little bit of touchy-feely, at least it has the aspects of touchy-feeliness that perhaps the more hardcore engineers of ours wouldn't be interested in. But um, I, journaling is, I found is pretty effective in terms of, I, will, I won't say that you can ever regain the beginner's mind where you can drop preconceptions, but at least you can re-understand, uh, I mean, not have preconceptions, but at least you can remember what it was like not to have these preconceptions. Um, so I would recommend that have essentially an engineering journal. Um, you, you can have ones that are specific to a project. I really like those. And I recommend you just have a general one. I'm a fan of day one, the journaling app. And I totally mix in both my you know, personal uh, photographs and uh, journal en- entries along with uh, decisions, uh, technical decisions I'm making in terms of like projects I'm pursuing. And also um, the decisions of, of, of the trade-offs uh, of, of what I'm currently working on. You'd be surprised how often you'd – at least this is actually my primary way I use day one in terms of going back into previous entries is uh, – well, yeah, I would say my primary one is that I'll be like, yeah, you know, why did I make this decision? 
And I know organizations like GitHub have like, they're big into something like IRC or something like that, that they basically, all decisions go onto an archived chat thread that's, you can kind of look these things up easily. But if you're a lone wolf like I am, then you can, um, then it's kind of easy to make a decision, kind of like have a bunch of trade-offs in your mind and make a decision and forget what those trade-offs even were. And then a, a year or three later, you like, well, now why do you even make this decision? And and I've I've been uh, using day one for a number of years now, and I've used that effectively to go back in the past and find those trade offs. And I've also found that journaling is helpful for when I want to teach someone else a technology that I previously learned. That helps me go back to the beginner's mind phase, like the type of like totally not understanding what's going on. I write down these questions. I even have a kind of a, a weird format for this where. Uh, I'll put a couple of question marks in front of, kind of use them, instead of like bullet points, I use a couple of question marks as bullet points. And those are, the nice thing about the double question marks is that they're easy to kind of search for and document. And then I have a couple of exclamation marks at the uh, in the line after it, if I ever answer those questions. And slowly but surely, as I w- learn something, I will turn those double question marks into double exclamation marks. And I will see what, you know, kind of the disconnects I had and the things that weren't at all clear. And I've used that effectively to go back and understand what someone else from the outside or from someone else beginning can understand, uh, needs to uh, understand to get to the point where I'm at. I almost think, like, I almost wish there could be, like, a naivety as a service type thing where... Uh, this is essentially this is what user testing is, right? We all get involved in our own software, and we no longer can see the forest or the trees. And user testing is one of these things where you can you can have this person, okay, you don't know anything about my software. Please use it, and can I watch you? And please speak your thoughts. And this is, of course, a ter- it's it's uh, is if you've ever have gone through user testing, I've gone through it a few times. Um, it's amazingly frustrating and amazingly illuminating. Um, amazingly frustrating because the, the, uh, this very obvious thing that the user should do, they're not doing. And, <laughs> and um, but that also is a high illuminating that it's, it's obviously they're not on the same page you are and they haven't figured out all the trade-offs and the scenarios that they're in and, and the constraints. And so they, they, they're coming in from a person who's just trying to get some work done because one person said, oh, try to do this one thing. So, uh, so yes, so journaling all goes back to kind of the beginner's mind. And, uh, yeah, so don't waste your ignorance. Uh, leverage it by journaling. And, oh, one of the reasons why I mentioned Jit the Lit is um, this guy, Secret Geek, responded to Damien Katz. And he says, he said, I don't think you really believe that, which was the original kind of inflammatory tweet. I don't think you really believe that. Implement, elicit constructive feedback, and then just in time, the literature. Surely? And Damien goes on to say, yes, yes. In fact, that's what I, well, of course, what I really mean, but it doesn't piss off academics, so I don't want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's, and so I think that's actually a good pattern for trying of, uh, kind of treating academia. A big point of what uh, Damien Cass was talking about is that you don't really, you can't really, really understand the academic literature until you actually try to live it, until you try to actually yeah. build a system. Yep. And, um, but 
unfortunately, you're probably going to make mistakes that everyone else has made as, as well. But on the other hand, but so the idea is to just in time literature. So you you go off, do your naive model, right? Again, this goes back to the naivety, naivety as a service type thing that we wish we could have. Go and build your your obviously broken thing, and then when then you can when you read the literature, a lot of the things it will make more sense to you. And um, and of course, the, the constructor feedback is also really powerful, just in terms of how your program is going to crash, and of course, uh, how people end up using your software. So. Um, yes, I kind of jumped around there, but I think the biggest biggest points I I, I got in terms of um, try to use the literature, but don't waste all your time reading it first, and leverage your naivety so you can, uh, later by journaling. There we go. Okay, well, I had a couple couple points I yeah. thought of when you were going through that. One is how would you even find appropriate literature? for what your particular issue is right now. Like you're saying, try your first efforts and then check the literature. Well, there's no guarantee you're going to, you're going to find the appropriate, you know, papers or whatever that are out there that are based on that because you don't know the terminology that, that academia is using to describe your problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Do they need, do they need a you to, uh, to find the paper? For um, them? this is where Wolf as a service. <laughs> this is where, a kind of reading, a kind of following technical blogs that you're maybe only tangentially currently interested in really pays off, and you read them for years. <laughs> and yeah, I guess you pretty much need me as a service because uh, this is why I love uh, RSS so much and uh, feed readers that allows me to kind of keep up with things tangentially until I need them, um, which is actually quite often. Um, yeah, follow leaders in the field that people were who. Um, moving ahead, um, you, you, once you actually implement something, you you might get lucky by maybe searching through the ACM journals. But at this point, I think like even Google would be better at yeah. trying to find the, at least the names of papers and then kind of digging in because a lot of, most of the important academic papers that at least that we've mentioned on this show uh, are tend to be freely available off the author's own personal website. So, yeah. and. Yeah, and oh, I would I would say actually, yeah, it's kind of it sounds self-serving, but I would say you know also listen to our show because I think we do a pretty good job of talking about kind of the pragmatic academic type stuff, or or at least you do. So yeah, that's, <laughs> that's half of it. The other side of it, the other thing that I was thinking of was you said at some point something along the lines of, well, now that you understand the problem, you'll be able to understand the papers to talk about the problem, mm-hmm. and I'm not. Entirely sure that that's the case because mm. I do think the the culture of academia is quite different than the culture of the regular uh, business tech. Yeah, yeah, I would say world. you have a better chance of understanding it. <laughs> you can you can throw roll the dice with the you only need to get a you know double one one six instead of two. I don't know. I don't, is it, is it, I don't actually play many games of chance, so I don't know. What the, <laughs> I thought I thought you were going to bring out Dungeons and Dragons reference for me. <laughs> Well, you know, I could. <laughs> I won't, but I could. Oh, okay. So anyway, yeah, so, it, okay. It, but again, it seems like, yeah, it seems like you know, if, if you really want to use those as resources, you're going to have to spend some ongoing effort to meet them halfway. Yeah. yeah. So, mm-hmm. so good luck with that. <laughs> I think that's well, an and, and official downer. You know, I've, tried, I, I've tried to sort of follow, like I think, 
what I probably need to do is actually look at your RSS feeds. Can I even do that? Do you have like a public thing, which is all your, uh, um, no, I don't. I, I've been paying more attention to what you put on like the, your delicious thing, uh-huh. but that seems to be mostly like JavaScript stuff. So <laughs> I think you might be keeping more of the, of the stuff that you found to yourself at the moment. So if you ever get a chance to make more of that public, I think that would be cool. Okay. All right. And we'll see you next time.